Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madden, the podcast that gives you the insights, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour Podcast, and I'm your host, Cole Sharman. Today we are joined by Lisa Ventura. Lisa is an inspiring woman in the industry of cybersecurity and was recently in the top 50 women of influence. Currently the CEO and founder of the Cybersecurity Association, Lisa has been through a lot of great and testing experiences in her life, including autism. We run through a roller coaster story till 2019, where she was the winner of Cybersecurity Personality of the Year at the Cybersecurity Awards. Hope you enjoy it. Beecher Madden are recruiters for cybersecurity and corporate governance professionals. Leveraging our long held relationships, industry knowledge, and data driven approach, we help companies and candidates make better hiring decisions. So, hi Lisa, welcome to the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm really good, thank you, Carl. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for asking. Now, first, mm. it's a pleasure to uh, have you here because I know you're, you've won uh, or not been nominated for many awards this year. So I just want to say yep. congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, won three and two more that I've been uh, that I'm a finalist in that are coming up in October. So well, it's good. been uh, been a really incredible year, actually. <laughs> really yeah, well, good luck with that. Good luck with that. It's, Thank uh, you. You're certainly being recognised on uh, on social media as well. So mm. it's all good things for you. So let's yeah. go right back to the beginning. So where were you born? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was born in um, Worcester, where I still lived. Uh, never uh, lived uh, anywhere else. Um, thought about uh, over the years, sort of maybe shall I move to London? Shall I be closer to here because of work and so on? But I come from an Italian background and family is really, really important to me. So I've just never been able to um, you know, to move away and, and be away, particularly from my parents. And that's actually quite a good thing at the moment because I'm an only child and my dad's got a myriad of health things. So I'm, I, I help to look after him as well. Excellent. Tell me a little bit about your parents. Yeah, sure. So my my, my dad, uh, quite interesting. He came to live in the UK when he was 10. Uh, his sister and uh, brother were already settled here. And he was born in um, a tiny village called Mongrasano in Calabria in southern Italy. And my grandmother, believe it or not, was 47 when she had him. And he was a wow. post-war baby. Um, and my grandfather was 52 when granddad had been away in the war, come back and as you know, was with a lot of the baby boom at that time, my dad was the result. Um, so my auntie was already settled here and, and she didn't have any children. And so she brought him up. He went to school here, uh, worked here. Um, and uh, he, he's always been here since then. And he, he met my mum. Uh, she was born in Worcester um, as, as, as well. Um, and uh yeah, uh, quite sad at the moment because my dad, as I said, has a myriad of health um, problems. He was diagnosed with epilepsy a couple of years ago. Um, he's got quite significant mobility issues and he's currently being assessed for um, possible dementia. So we have quite a few challenges and, and sometimes I just have to drop everything and 
sort him out or, or go up to hospital or doctors or something like that. But I do also have the support of my husband, who's amazing, um, because he actually practically given up a lot of his work to be kind of the main carer and main port of call for anything that, that goes wrong. But I still have to you know, dovetail it and, and help my dad with, with quite a few things when they arise. Well, I wish him all the best in, in that Thank regard. Um, so, just just staying with your with your mm. upbringing, like, tell yep. us a little bit about your education. Um, well, I I didn't really sort of have a, a, a traditional path. I um, did my usual sort of GCSEs and then A levels. And the big thing I really wanted to do was to anything to do with writing. From even when I was very tiny, my mum used to say you were never happy with toys. You weren't really fussed about toys. But as long as you had a pen and paper in your hand, you were away. Um, so I, I was really into creative writing, um, doing short stories, poetry, all sorts of, of different things like that. So my first port of call um, career wise in my head was, well, maybe you know, I'd love to perhaps go into journalism. But it's hard to believe. But at the time, um, email wasn't really into the forefront. We weren't connected in this in the way that we are today. And the only way that I could have done that was to um, go and do a degree in either Cardiff or Sheffield or Bournemouth or one of those centres and then move to London um, because I wanted to work on magazines. And obviously, because of reasons I mentioned earlier and family and stuff, I just I just couldn't do it. So in, instead, I went down the route of doing H&D in business and finance. And um, that's equivalent to a, a two one degree. So I came away with with that. Um, and then the early part of um, of, of my career, I, I landed in working, believe it or not, with Chris Tarrant, the um, host of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And um, I fell into that straight from from studying. And I worked with Chris for uh, seven years. So interesting times. Yeah. Tell me, <laughs> tell me how that came about and you, um, in your role in his life as well. Yeah. Well, I went to um, a, a, a seminar on careers in the media, which was oh, which is right up my my street at the end of my um, HND. And it was actually run by Chris's manager, a chap called Paul Vaughan. Um, and at the end of the, um, the the seminar, I just I, I just went up to him and we started talking. And he said, um, I actually have an opening in my um, office to um, my, my PA actually needs some help because we're just getting you know, really, really busy. And it wasn't just Chris. They had a lot of TV and radio personalities that they looked after. Um, people like Richard Allenson, who was on Capital Radio, um, Les Ross and Ed Doolan from uh, BBC um, WM and um, BRMB. Um, John Ketley, the weatherman at the time, they looked after. So it wasn't just Chris. There was a whole you know, range of, of different TV and radio personalities. Um, so I got talking to him, um, arranged an interview, went to see him, and he gave me the job. Within two days of me starting, his PA um, handed in a notice to move to Gibraltar with her husband. So within a month... I just assumed, oh, he's going to replace his PA. He didn't. And I kind of just fell into that role. But also, he was a magistrate and a school governor. And again, this was just, he had a phone in his car, but we didn't really have mobile phones. They were just coming out into the forefront. Not everybody had them and, and so on. Um, and we get a lot of phone calls. Would Chris like to um, take part in Room 101? Would Chris like to come on tonight with Trevor McDonald? Would Chris like to do this event or that event? And I could never get hold of um, 
of Paul if he was busy. So I would just pick up the phone to Chris. Do you want to do this? Do you want to do this? Chris was suddenly starting to get a lot busier. So I ended up just looking after his portfolio of stuff and, and what he was doing. And I remember when Millionaire came along um, on a format on A4 paper called uh, Cash Mountain was its uh, working title. And at the time, I can remember looking at it thinking, but they're putting the answers on the screen. ITV are going to be paying out you know, a million pounds left, right and, and centre. But actually, it was an incredibly clever format because you had to know a lot about a lot of things in order to do well. So academics on the show never really fared very well. They may know a lot about their specialist subject, but giving them a question about um, you know, the latest single from the boy band Blue in the charts and they would be stumped and use up their lifeline and phone a friend and, and all sorts very, um, very early on. Um, so I had seven years of, of, of doing that and it was amazing times and um, really, really enjoyed it. But again, for for family reasons, because I was going back and forth to London a lot, I, I got to a point where I thought, I've gone as far as I can with this now, and it's time for a change, and I want to be a bit closer to home. Tell me what that experience yeah. taught you, which is now helping you today. Yeah, um, the, the, well, negotiation skills um, certainly was something that uh, came to the forefront that I didn't really sort of know I could do, but in the early days of, of just picking up the phone and speaking to people, I would just go, well, you know, it is Chris and he's really busy um, and his fee is sort of 10,000, but we can only hold the date for so long. Nine times out of 10, we would get the fees that, that we were asking for. So not only was Chris busier, but he was actually earning a lot more as, as, as well, which was you know, happy days um, for, for him. So um, I did a lot of his PR as well. So I obviously was able to still write and do press releases. And as often happened with Chris, crisis management came into it quite a bit because he was a naughty boy on a couple of occasions um, and the press picked <laughs> up on it, as you can imagine. Um, so there was there, there was all of that. But alongside that, um, my ex-husband was very, very much in the IT and technology industry, and he started out in document management, um, ended up in um, disaster recovery, which is actually where I met my um, second husband, and then um, ended up being a, a penetration tester. So I was really absorbed in that whole technology, IT you know, thing. I love computer. I had my first computer when I was about eight years old, so I, I grew up. You know, with them and I've always used them as a tool to be able to you know, write interestingly not code but just to do a lot of the writing and and, and stuff like that that I wanted to do um so I would just quiz him a lot about his work and I I used to go I was totally talking to my husband this morning about how we used to go on some of the jobs that um he and my now husband used to go on I used to go with them and I used to get really involved in a lot of that sort of tech um, side of things. So I had a huge interest in that through through him, through through my um, my, my ex-husband, um, particularly when he was a penetration tester at Kinetic and then a company called um, Portcullis. And he just used to love doing nothing more than sitting and coding and, you know, really um, – Sort of making things work and um, getting you know, into those systems and stuff. And he couldn't tell me a lot of what he did because obviously he'd signed the Official Secrets Act and so on. But I know that he did a lot of um, you know, work with the, the, the government and, and so on. Um, and he'd often go out on um, pen testing jobs. And um, you know, again, I just, you know, tell me what's going on, tell me what's going on. A lot of time it was, no, I can't. <laughs> so. Yeah. 
No, I can imagine. <laughs> and I suppose, like, when was the first time you really heard, you know, the term or whatever it was at that point in your in your career, you know, of cybersecurity? Uh, I would say when he joined Kinetics, that's probably around about 2005 when he joined Kinetic as a, a, a penetration tester. And that's when I really began to get, you know, involved in that sort of whole world and, you know, hear a lot about, you know, what he was doing. And what really fascinated me about it, the, the, the actual getting into things was the psychology of hacking, the mind of a hacker, why they do what they do. So I, I would read up a lot about that and um, really get absorbed in it, um, look a lot at at what he was doing and um he then moved on to um, portcullis computer security and i got in, involved with a lot of the guys there and you know got quite friendly and chatting with them so um again you know really getting involved in that whole um you know, cyber security and mindset as it started to really come to the the, the forefront um and he developed a tool in his um spare time called what's now called today nipper studio but it was then called um nipper and he would just sit for hours and hours just coding and writing and coding and writing and do you know what I actually remember thinking one day I just know he's going to create something and it's going to be huge and it is and it absolutely is and I you know fair play to him because he's developed something that's used today all over the world um, with America being the biggest market and, and and so on and I'm actually really like proud of that and proud that I was involved in those very early days of, of, of that journey with him. Swim was really the first mm. time that you started working in the industry. Uh, 2009, I actually, he incorporated Titania Limited and I joined to um, help him in those early days of, of growing, developing the business. It started from literally just a room in in our house. As I said, he coded the, um, the, the product um, and once it was out there as a commercial product, it grew organically really, really quickly. So I got involved in a lot of the operations. Um, I got to meet a lovely lady called Dr. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, Dr. Emma Philpot, um, who's now um, the director of IASME and runs a um, community SOC for uh, training those who are neurodiverse into careers in cybersecurity. And she also founded the um, UK Cyber Forum and the Malvern Festival of Innovation. So I got involved in a lot of those initiatives um, quite early on, um, especially the Malvern Festival of Innovation when it first started back in 2011. Um, so we, we grew quite quickly. We had to source offices. We employed our first members of staff, um, made some mistakes as, as, as you do when you, um, when you start up. Um, and uh, it was quite an exciting um, time. We did trade shows. We um, I project managed a lot of those. And alongside that, I founded a, um, a bit of a different thing, but I founded a literary festival in Worcestershire um, because I wanted to keep my hand into the writing side of things alongside the, the other stuff that, that I was I was doing. Um, in 2012, uh, my um, ex-husband and I made the decision that we would separate and go our, our separate ways. So not only was it um, the end of the 16-year marriage, but also I had to think about, gosh, what am I going to do next? Um, so I had a bit of a limbo period, if you like, of working that out. But I then joined BT and um, I worked on their Shore Cyber um, tool, which was quite similar to what uh, Nipper Studio um, was at the time. And I, again, I just, I just knew then I thought, I want to stay in tech and, and cybersecurity. 
because this industry really excites me. Um, and even then, I and it's I still see it today. There's still quite a big head in the sand approach to the from the C-suite in terms of why do we need to you know, worry about this? It hasn't happened to us. We haven't been hacked. We haven't had a data breach, so we don't need to put budget towards you know making ourselves secure. We don't need to worry about it. And then something might happen and it's too late by then. The you know, reputational you know, risk management, so on, is, is out the window um, and so on. So that's the area that I knew that I wanted to um, to, to, to specialise in is that whole cyber awareness side and you know, making you know, small businesses and um, SMEs aware of the cyber risk, that they do need to have it on their agendas and what they, they should do to um, be you know, a lot more cyber secure. So upon leaving Titania mm. in 2012, mm-hmm. what would you say you you really had achieved in that, you know, three-year period, you know, for you personally? Um, gosh, I'd say, um, I mean, I had the idea for what's now the UK Cybersecurity Association back then. Um, and I knew that I wanted to work and develop on that. But in 2013, I remarried to my now husband. And a month later, I discovered I was expecting a baby. Um, at the five-month mark, uh, we were told that our unborn son would have significant disabilities. So I pre- prepared for that life of being a full-time mum. I thought, well, I'm not going to be going anywhere in cybersecurity now. My life is going to be 24-hour, round-the-clock care for my son that's um, got a lot of significant disabilities um so i came away from from bt i um put a lot of those things in place prepared for that life and then um he was unfortunately stillborn so within i had to literally i had to pick myself up in 2012 and also again in 2013 2014 because i thought gosh what on earth am i gonna do now i've prepared for this one life and now i've got to think about um, what i'm going to do next And it actually coincided um, losing my son with a myriad of other family bereavements. I lost um, my father-in-law in in quite horrific circumstances with cancer. Uh, We lost my cousin Tony, my cousin Brenda, my auntie married to dementia, my uncle Vince, my cousin Maxie. It was just relentless. I was going to funeral after funeral after funeral with no let up in in sight. So there was a period where I, I couldn't really even sort of focus on on what I was going to do next but then once the dust settled from all of of that I thought I need to go back to my original idea of the UK Cybersecurity Association and my husband worked on the website and we put it out um, in terms of what we called an expressions of interest phase so we wanted to create a, a network where we could share best practice, share the latest sort of threats that are out there, who's responding to them, um, you know, what's going on in the industry, create a network of um, of meetups, of events, uh, webinars, uh, groups as well for women in cybersecurity and so on. Um, and it's fair to say that the expressions of interest phase has been incredible. We've been inundated with um requests from people saying they would love to um to, to to join us that they would love to get involved um they'd love to be a member so um, we're going to close that phase um off actually at the end of this month and work on the website um in terms of getting that ready for um, launching membership hopefully early next year 
And I've also had to combine a lot of what I do around, as I mentioned earlier, my dad's um, health problems as well. And I never know when I'm going to be needed um, for that. So I work to a really sort of fluid schedule. I may, you may find me doing things sort of evenings or weekends or things and not in the week because I've got to go to an appointment with, with my dad and so on. Um, but what I've created for myself now and, and um, getting diagnosed with um, autism actually helped me with this is, I've really spent the last year creating the perfect work-life balance for me and working remotely. I know now that working in an office is absolutely not for me because of the sensory um, problems that I have relating to my autism diagnosis and so on. Um, so everything I, I, I do now is, is, is with, with, with that in mind. Um, and making sure that I, I, I cater to those needs that, that, that I have so that I don't get overwhelmed and I don't feel as if I'm going to have um, yeah, a lot of meltdowns internally all the time, which I used to when I worked in an office. Um, and that's been really important to me as well, getting all those those, those insights and my diagnosis. I feel like we could talk for hours, if I'm honest. There's uh, there's so many <laughs> questions I have. But coming back to that really devastating, mm. um, and I'm – you know, I'm, I'm sorry that you had to go through that period of your life, mm. but ultimately, yeah. what was that one moment that you got past all the loss that you had and looked to the future and went, this is what I now, what, this is what I'm now going to do? Um, I'd say it was last, it was actually last summer. Um, I'd got the diagnosis last June and I'd spent a couple of months, as I said, putting those things in place. And it, it's weird to explain, but getting that diagnosis also helped me to process a lot of the grief and loss that, that I'd, I'd had. And I say luckily or unluckily, they'd touch wood, there'd be the period of time without a death or a funeral. So before I'd been going from, you know, one bereavement to funeral, to one bereavement, to funeral, to a, to another, and you know, while I carried on working and while I, you know, tried to do the best sort of job that, that I could, and and so on, I, it was very difficult for me to obviously do the best you know, job to my ability because of all the grief and loss that was going on. So, um, getting that that diagnosis really helped, and obviously, as you would expect, I had quite significant, you know, counselling. Um, I had a lot of bereavement counselling sessions and so on that really helped me. But also I have to give a shout out to um, an amazing, amazing guy that helped me so much over the years, which is actually the chaplain at the Worcestershire Royal Hospital where my son um, was actually born. And he has just been such an amazing support and, and mentor and really helping me, you know, understand and process everything that, that happened to me. So, once that diagnosis came, I thought, right, I need to make changes. I need to focus on what I enjoy, what makes me tick. I need to create that life for myself that involves you know, working from home in my own space, not having a lot of those sensory um, you know, things coming at me that come from working in an office. And I, <clears throat> I knew then that that's when I was going to concentrate solely on cybersecurity. I wasn't going to do um, anything else. Um, and I also do do a lot of blogging and writing in my spare time, but I do focus very much on the tech and, and cyber industry. So I do a lot of you know, thought leadership. I write a lot of um, reports. I do a lot of white papers, um, you name it. And I'm hoping next year I can branch out into doing more videos and podcasts and so on of my own as well. 
yeah, and and that's the thing, right? Is that you know you've gone through a lot of mm. heartache in your life for sure, um, but you now you've now probably gone from a period where you was doing very little to doing <laughs> a hell of a lot. So yeah. how do you manage that time, especially with you know your father and other personal yeah. situations? Yeah. Um, as I said, I have the support of my husband, Russell, and oh my goodness, he is just amazing. If I, if, if I had to pick an analogy, it's a little bit like um, Margaret Thatcher in the 80s would sort of, you know, walk out and Dennis would be trailing along sort of almost behind, but always there supporting her. And that's a little bit what, um, you know, we're, we're like, he does so much for me in the background um, that allows me to be able to get on with everything that I do in the in the cybersecurity space and the association. And um, I'm currently writing a, a, a book as well, um, focusing on women in cybersecurity. That's going to be called The Rise of the Cyberwoman. Um, and I'm, I, I, in terms of the time, um, <laughs> what happened happened with, with with my son. And I actually went on um, afterwards to have a, a whole load of other miscarriages and was diagnosed with a condition. So we made a decision, no more, and we'll stay as, as we are. So obviously we don't have children, so we don't have that family thing. And um, I decided, right, we don't have that. Let's use the time I've got on this earth as productively as possible. Be there for my parents. I know that they won't be around um, forever. And I think it's helped him as well create the life that, that he wants because he wasn't really happy commuting up and down the motorway to Birmingham working, you know, like he, he used to. Um, so he's the first port of call. He's on the hand for a lot of, of, of stuff. Working from home helps so much because I actually have my dad here two or three days a week now. Um, Dad's quite happy to sit watching Judge Judy or whatever on the telly. And I, um, yeah, happy to get on with my work while he's doing that. And my mum can get a, a bit of a rest as well because it's starting to take its toll on on her. Um, so, it, you know, for for me, it's 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 all been about you know creating that that life, finding time where I can. But also, my husband and I are very clear that we have our evenings to ourselves. Um, we try to have our weekends to ourselves as as, as well if, if if we can. So. Um, we, we do our best to make that happen. Sometimes that's that's not possible. Um, but we're really fluid and we work around things. And, and we're a really, really good team, really good team. So I couldn't do it you know, with, without him and, and, and his support in, in so many ways um, to allow me to, to, to get on with what I want to do. Absolutely. Now, now you said you're trying to focus mm. and trying to support mm. SMEs. So yeah. why, why is your... Why are you motivated to want to do that? Um, because I see so much that they don't seem to understand why they need to take the cyber risk um, seriously. And then they've been hacked or it's too late. And then that's you know, when they suddenly have it on their agenda and they look at investing in um, you know, their, their cyber resources and, and so on. So that's a, a lot of you know, what I do is, is, is about that. They might look at the data breaches of the likes of BA and, and, and Capital One and so on. I think, well, that's a huge organization where they're not going to bother with with us. But actually, um cyber criminals may well look towards sort of small businesses as you know sort of easy targets because they may not have the security that they they should have um so that to me you know looking at that that area and even if i could get one business to understand why they should take it a lot lot more seriously i i would be happy so alongside the, the work i do with the association i also do a lot of um 
support work with um, small businesses and SMEs to um, train them and their staff um, to understand that because it's a cliche phrase and I'm not 100% keen on it, but really everybody in the organisation does need to take you know, some responsibility in their part in um, understanding the cyber threat and making sure that, you know, that their passwords are complex, that they don't, you know, leave data pens lying, lying around with key data on it. You know, just, you know, little simple things like, like that. And organisations just need to understand, you know, things like just, you know, firewalls, antivirus, you know, all that kind of thing can really, really help in, in, in securing their systems. So what has this allowed you to do in terms of your experiences? We, we You mentioned very briefly that, it allows you to work remote, mm. it allows you mm. to um, have more flexibility in your life. But what else mm. has it provided you uh, in, in terms of your life or your career? Um, it's certainly allowed me to you know, really focus on um, being in, in cybersecurity in particular, which is what I knew I always wanted to do from you know, the days of when I was at Titania Limited. So, um, you know, for, for, for me, it's it's about, you know, where do I want to um, go from here? Well, obviously, the association is one of my key focuses. So launching that to take in members and have that as a fully fledged membership organisation from next next year i want to write you know more books on the subject i'm starting that process now with a book on uh, women in cybersecurity because um there's some amazing women out there doing incredible things but they don't like to put their hands above the parapet to say you know what they're doing and you know how they're doing it and how they're making a, a, a difference and um cybersecurity as we know is just such a male um, dominated world at the moment but there are so many you know amazing women doing great things and I wanted to give a platform to to them and tell their stories and how you know, they got into the industry and what I would really love is the book to be a resource that would be you know given to when perhaps you know girls that are looking at STEM careers or careers in cyber and perhaps when they're leaving school or they're at college or, or considering what career path that they want to take um, they may be a bit off put by the fact it is quite a male-dominated industry but actually if they could you know look and read and understand some of the stories of some of the amazing women that are doing great great things i'm hoping it would encourage a a, a lot more women to enter the industry yeah i agree with that and Mm. as i'm sure you know you know we and i am a massive promoter of this so i've seen a massive rise in women in security whether it's um, mentions on social media whether it's publications whether it's articles there is certainly traction and it's Mm. really starting to um you know, really starting to gain speed. But mm-hmm. would you say this is because of timing with other uh, social events? Or, you know, what what do you think is, is the reason for this? Um, I think women are starting to put their hands above the parapet, as I said, a little bit more and sort of coming out there. But I still think there's there's quite a long way um, to, to, to go with it. Um, just to give you an example, I attended um, InfoSec this year for the first time um, in a few years because of uh, reasons I mentioned earlier and all the bereavements and so on. Um, and I was amazed to find it was a couple of key things for me at InfoSec that I was quite surprised about. One was what I termed as um, beer bias. And by that, I mean, I, I was there on the on the Wednesday and a lot of the um, the, the booths were actually serving beer at sort of 10, 30, 11 in the morning. And, it just, and what I observed was that any women that walked past, they weren't bothering with at all. 
bad guy walked past, they'd hand a beer out or offer them something to get them into their stand and so on. And I thought, I don't like this. This is a bit, I would have thought that it may have changed a bit in a few years and it, it quite clearly hadn't. And then um, there was a particular incident. I attended a, the, the talk there with Professor um, Sue Black and the, the talk was uh, amazing. And um, after the event, I discovered that there was a, a lovely lady who was actually about eight months pregnant who had missed, the train was late and she rushed in to, to try and get to the event. And she was blocked from, from getting in um, to see Sue Black because she was late. And um, because she was heavily pregnant, she obviously needed a seat and because you know, she'd rushed and so on and, and just needed to sit down. And the security guard sort of led her all the way out and told her to sit on a concrete slab outside. I just thought this shouldn't be happening. This these events should be a lot more inclusive. Now, I get that Infosec aren't responsible for the security staff and and, and their actions, but um, there's also another lovely lady as well as I'm, I'm sure you're aware, Jane Franklin, that does a lot of work in that area um, and is doing a survey at the moment to look for these kind of of, of things because I think there's still um, a lot of um, imbalance and, and incidents like that are, are just going to only serve to put women off and not encourage them to enter the industry at all. Um, and I know Jane's code of conduct is going a long way um, with event organisers like InfoSec to stop things like, like that from happening. But I do think there's a lot more work to be done on it. So how do you think, because I know you write on a subject called Rise of the, mm. Rise of the Cyberwoman, yeah. how do you yeah. think this type of you know, code of conduct, publications, books are going to help the industry? Um, I think that hopefully they will help the industry you know, a, a lot. I think events as, as, as well and, and being as inclusive as, as possible um, will, will also help. But I, I think as well, if more women can come forward and, and share their stories and share the, the, the positivity about working in the cybersecurity industry, because I'm aware of well, yeah, what I've just said on those two things isn't yeah, it was really positive, but I think that there's small changes. There's a lot of you know, things that can be done to help um, in, in terms of making women feel more um, yeah, welcome and inclusive at events. And I know that, that Jane's work is going a long way um, to, towards that. Um, and I, I, I just think that the, the, the more that's done to encourage them, the more that, you know, the, it can be seen as being a positive industry. Yes, it's you know very male dominated, but there's, you know, so I, I can see a lot of um, men being really supportive on um, social media and so on of women in the industry. Nathan Chung being one of them, um, Francesco Triponi at HSBC, he's doing a lot of great work um, around that. So um, the, the more that, that that can happen and the more that that's shared, I, I, I think the better. Yes, very true. Yes. So how do you think like this type of awareness and these types of conversations can help or change people's hiring processes or management approach to uh, getting more women into security? Um, I, I, certainly, I think you know, looking at, at the job ads and how they're written and um, you know, how they interview and, and, and so on, uh, it is a long way to, to go. And I know some organisations are already doing um, that and looking at making sure that their ads are a lot more um, inclusive, um, that they have diversity in, in mind as, as, as well. Um, and to really sort of thinking about that whole culture of how they portrayed themselves um, sort of internally to externally uh, will will help a lot um, as, as, as well. Um Again, so many organisations are doing some great work um, in those areas, but there's still a lot of uh, work to be done. Um, 
especially I think with regard to neurodiversity and um, considering those that are neurodiverse in some way for careers in cybersecurity. And that's where Emma Philpott's work comes in uh, really well because her um, SOC Academy in, in Worcester trains um, individuals should take a cohort in um, every so often and, and train them um, specifically to enter the cybersecurity um, industry. And it's it's amazing to see because a lot of those people just would not have the opportunity to enter the industry or even be considered in the industry um, otherwise. And you know, to see those those people um, getting developed and, and their skills being developed and, and them getting you know, jobs and so on in, in the industry can it's 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 amazing and it can only be a you know, a good thing and hopefully go somewhere to addressing um, the cyber skills gap that we see a lot as well. Totally agree in that. So yeah. what do we what do we really need to do? Mm-hmm. more of to enhance the amount of women in the industry um there's a lot being done and i think just making them feel welcome um making sure that whatever messages that um, organizations put out will will resonate um making them feel that they are part of the team that they're not going to get sidelined if they take maternity leave or career break and and so on um so i think just that whole communication part um getting them a lot more involved, making them feel part of you know, of a team, um, sharing those positive stories as well of, you know, of other women in the industry that have, that have you know, done great things. And that should go hopefully a very long way to um, encouraging a lot more women to enter the industry. And if you had to pick one area to focus on, would it be women coming into the industry or more support around senior women already in the industry? Um, I'd, I would love to see a lot more being done with encouraging more women to enter it, either straight from studying or whether they're looking to change um, careers, which effectively I, I did. Because um, obviously I was in a very different industry and, and, and although it was kind of marketing and, and, and PR, it was also very much along the entertainment industry. And then I did a lot of contracting work and education and so on. Um, so I think encouraging them to enter from the ground sort of upwards, I think would be a, a great thing. Um, but I think also, you know, support for more senior women as, as, as well, especially if they are in a, a very male dominated organization. Um, so, you know, groups, meetups, um, you know, so all, all those kind of things to support can only be a good thing. Now you have a new book on the horizon. Mm. I know you mentioned it once earlier on this mm. podcast for women yeah. in cybersecurity. So Mm -hmm. what are you looking to achieve from this and what is the key messages? Um, The key message, well, the the key messages is that I want to give a platform for women to share their stories of how they got into the industry. But what I'm particularly looking for 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 women that maybe didn't have, like myself, a linear journey into cybersecurity. Um, they may have had a different, totally different career path and then changed course and entered the industry like, like I did. They may have had some significant family challenges um, around getting into the industry. Um, or they, um, they, 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 they may have just decided um, to, to go into it from, um, from school or from college or so on. But the path hasn't necessarily been straightforward. They may have overcome a lot of adversity, um, again, like I did. And, and it, it, it's those stories that I'm really looking to feature and I'm looking to, to, to tell. 
and what I really want to get in front of other women that are looking to enter the industry is you can do it. You you can overcome a lot of you know things that, that go on in, in, in your life and you can still be you know, as successful as you absolutely can, you know, can, can be. Um, and that's what I really you know, want to do. And actually the response to the book so far, I'm really overwhelmed. Um, I put a call out for um, anybody that wanted to get involved or submit a, you know, their story for inclusion and so on. And I only put that out um, at the weekend. And all week I've been responding to messages, to emails, um, so, so positive. And I actually think, gosh, if if this many people you know, in the industry want to submit a chapter, there may even be a volume one, two, even three. Um, and I'm looking to feature the stories of, of women from you know, all over the world as, 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 as well um, and really make it a, a, a big global project. Absolutely. And that sounds very mm-hmm. exciting. Now, mm-hmm. coming back to you personally, you were mm-hmm. diagnosed with autism in 2018. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So go through your thoughts when you got that diagno- diagnosis. Yeah. Well, it, I wasn't actually even at the time seeking a diagnosis, although i known ever since I can remember that I was different, that I wasn't very you know, good sort of fitting into social situations. Eye contact, in particular, I struggle hugely with making eye contact with, um, with 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 people. I have very sort of blinkered interests. So once I get into something, it's like an absolute obsession. It's I'm into that and nothing else. Um, so I, I I always knew that I didn't fit in, so so to speak. But I kind of just learned to get on with it. I suppose to mask it in a way and um, just yeah, just just live with it. And I actually attended my GP for something completely different last year. And she um, said to me, uh, Worcestershire Healthy Minds, which is the mental health unit where I live, is doing a survey looking for um, women with undiagnosed um, autism. And you hit the criteria because they're looking to try and find women with the condition between the ages of 40 and 45. And so obviously I fitted the, um, the criteria. And she said, would you mind just filling out a quick questionnaire? It's about 50 questions and so on. Yeah, I'll, I'll do it. Didn't think about it. Filled it in handed it into reception. On the same day, she rang me back in the evening and she said, I've had two doctors um, score your questionnaire and you've come out quite high as likely to be on the autistic spectrum. Can we organise for you to come in and have some more in-depth testing by the um, the lady that's running this survey? Um, and we can sort of go from there. So I did that a couple of weeks later. I spent about three or four hours, the whole myriad of different tests and questionnaires and so on. And then at the end, um, she said to me, there's absolutely no doubt you are indeed on the autistic spectrum. And it was honestly like a light bulb. I thought, oh my goodness, that explains so much of why I am the way I am. And it's a bit of a cliche, but it's like the pieces of the jigsaw all suddenly came together at that moment. And I, I just felt, yes, there, there is an explanation. I understand now why I'm so socially awkward. I understand now why I struggle with eye contact. I understand why being in an office or, you know, being a crowd of people and all the noise and the, and the sensory aspects of it have always been so much for me. Um, so it was at that point that I started to make um, changes to accommodate all of that. And at the same time, I also stumbled across a website called Me Decoded, run by um, another autistic lady called Helen Needham. And she was looking for contributors. So 
um, again, I was able to use what I do all the time, which is writing, to really process my diagnosis. And I've written a, a whole stream of different articles on various aspects of my being autistic and how I find it and the diagnosis and so on. And um, all of those have, have been published on, on Me Decoded. Um, and I did a recent one which has huge traction because I wrote about how um, I changed, even just the weekly, doing the weekly food shop, I adjusted that um, because you might think, well, just order you shopping online. But I can't do it because I, I need to choose the products. I, I need that control. I, I can't have somebody choosing everything in the supermarket and having it delivered to me. So I made some changes in that I go very early on a Saturday morning at about 7, 7.30 when it's really quiet. And I also shop at Aldi because it's laid out like it's a dream. Everything is in the same place week after week after week. Um, the way the shop is laid out, I can get exactly what I want. There's no annoying music or anything that could yeah, really overwhelm me. Um, I've got getting through the tills with them of the fine art. And that particular article really resonated um, with Helen's audience and it was hugely shared. So I was, I was quite, quite proud of that one. Has it changed how you approach like social situations, for example? Um, it, it has, um, because I now build time. So, for example, if I do go to a, a conference or if I am on a panel or I'm speaking and, and so on, I actually build in a day or two afterwards where there's not a lot in my diary. So I can just have some time after because those sort of events can be really overwhelming for me and one of the things that I would love to see more of is the introduction of, a, of quiet zones at a lot of events and conferences and you know quiet areas where people like myself can you know just just go to get away from all this to noise in the background and and everything else so I do do them but I build time into my my, my diary afterwards so that I can have some complete quiet for a day or two to to to, to recover and that and that really helps so I have made a lot of changes, you know, in my in, in my life to accommodate the the, the fact that I, I do have autism, and that's really helped me load you know, loads in terms of um, my day to day life and not getting so overwhelmed um, by everything that that's going on and not getting so much sensory um, overwhelmness as well. A bit like the women's security question that I asked previously: How mm. should people change their hiring processes or management approach? to people that have you know any any type of any of the conditions within neurodiversity um i'd say being able to offer you know, quiet environments or or in their processes to, to to accommodate you know people actually having those conversations with them and you know asking them what every individual is different so how can they support that individual how can they offer you know things that will help you know that that person because even the interview process can be very very overwhelming um to somebody like me and certainly it's something that i absolutely dread um, um doing and again it, it takes a lot out of me and i have to build in time afterwards to just have quiet to be able to get back to, to to normal so to speak so um you know just look at the language that you're using look at um you know how you're coming across look at how the room is is set up you know is, is the light too bright turn it down you know th those kind of things just just little things like that can just make all the difference to to somebody like me uh, and do you see any links between promoting neurodiversity to women in security 
Um, I, I do. And actually, that's one of the things that I want to um, perhaps work on next. So once the Rise of the Cyberwoman book is out, is actually have a, a, another book that focuses on women again, but also that are neurodiverse and, and talking about you know, their stories and you know, how they cope with, with, with life and what changes though they've, they've made. And again, I hope that will help other neurodiverse women as, as well that may want to look at um, entering the industry. So I, I think there's just so, so much work to, to, to be done. And I, I wish I could have another 24 hours in every day. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell me, look, what I want to understand from you is where do you see your career in three to five years time? I can imagine it's changed a lot in the last couple of years. So I'm interested to know where you're yeah. going to be in three or five. Yeah, it, it, it has. And obviously there's absolutely no crystal ball. So because of all the changes that I've had since sort of 2012, 2013, I try not to, you know, as much as I would love to look three to five years in, in, into the future and have those those kind of plans. I know from bitter experience that things just happen that are totally without your your, your, your control. And, you know, you have to, I mean, I've changed course a few times and not that I've wanted to change course at all, but, you know, it's it's been, I've had to, to, to do it. But I suppose in, in an ideal world, um, I would love to see the UK Cybersecurity Association um, being you know, a successful you know, membership uh, site, actually having you know, big events, conferences, um, a good solid membership base. Um, I would love to be doing more events in terms of um, speaking and being a panellist and taking part um, you know, in those, having written at least another couple of books and so on as, as, as well. So I've, it, it, I've kind of... I've, I've done a lot and I suppose at my time of life success to me isn't about creating a company that's got you know 50 60 we have many employees um you know having their livelihoods on my conscience as I go to sleep at, at, at night um I think I'm sort of you know more about um just you know building my own profile being a mentor I'm doing a lot more in education and you know really giving back everything that I've I've learned and all my experiences you know to to, to help other people and using that and your key messages mm. how do you see mm. the industry changing or looking like in let's say three years time mm. um I think with the uh, well, I would hope that a lot more businesses will be taking cybersecurity a lot more seriously. And I I also hope to see that on the agenda of the C-suite and a lot more organisations. Um, I would like to see even more conversation about it being you know, taking place. Um, obviously, things are evolving all the, all the time. I mean, gosh, even last, you know, even last night, you know, I, I discovered that you know, Thomas Cook only collapsed on Monday. Scammers are already picking up the phone to, to businesses and to people saying, um, you've booked a holiday, you need to pay us all this amount of money. And I'm thinking, gosh, they are one step ahead all the time. You know, so we we need to be you know, responsive to that and really need to you know, be on top of all of all of that as well and there's some you know fantastic work and some fantastic tools that are out there um you know my ex-husband's tool nipper studio is, is is one it's it's used all all over the world um and i'm really proud of him for um for creating that and, and, and where it is so it just it, that whole education piece you know i, I really hope that a lot of all that work will have come to fruition by by that time and you know, we'll see it being taken a lot more seriously. 
Excellent. Now, what I didn't tell you, Lisa, was that I finished mm. the podcast with the same 10 quickfire questions. So you mm. ready for this? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what turns you on professionally? Okay. Um, just doing a really you know, good, good job and seeing you know, the, the fruits of my work out there and um, also paying it forward. I'm also very much a believer in go-giving as, as, as well. So um, helping other people, helping businesses to understand the cyber threat, that's my, that's my driver. That's my motivation. What turns you off professionally? Um, bullies. I have been bullied mercilessly throughout my entire life. And I thought it would get better when I finished school. It actually didn't. It was far worse in the workplace than I ever could have imagined. Um, so I very much support the Stamp Out Bullying um, campaign and Bullying Awareness Week. Um, I hate having it done to me. I hate seeing it being done to, to other people. Um, and yeah, I would stamp out all bullies if I if I could excellent so how do you unwind um my husband and I love this bit cheesy pie but we love 80s American soap operas so we love the likes of Dallas Falcon Crest Dynasty we're nearly at the end of Dallas um at the moment we've watched that series loads of times we love sci-fi we love films um we're quite homebodies, so we don't tend to go out um, too much, but we invest a lot in our technology at home. Um, so we have you know, so many gadgets and Netflix and this and that. Um, and it's kind of just our sort of safe haven from, from the world, so, so to speak. So um, I also I love going to the gym and exercising to help my mental health as much as my uh, fitness as well. What profession other than your own would you like to try um, well, as I, I always wanted to be a weather forecaster. I am absolutely fascinated <laughs> with the weather. Um, and as a child growing up, I would just stop whenever the weather forecast was, was on. And I even thought, how can I do it? But I'm awful at maths, brilliant at English. And you'd needed maths and physics to even be considered to get onto the Met office and then onto the BBC. Oh, oh, and it had to be a weather forecaster on the BBC. I wanted to be the likes of Ian McCaskill, John Ketley, um, Bill Giles, um, all of those. (laughs) That's that's amazing. I can say I've never had that answer before. (laughs) So what activity gives you the most energy? Uh, definitely going to the to the gym. Um, I've actually been an avid gym goer for many years, practically since I, I left school. But I had a period of time since I lost my son until quite recently where I didn't go at all because of bereavements and, and I just wasn't in the right headspace. And then I did join the gym again in May this year. And I, I tried to go now at least you know, three times a, a week. And it really helps with um, you know, my, my mental health as well as you know, my sort of being fit physically. And I also have a, a dog. So we walk at least two or three times a day as well. So um, I always make sure I build in that time for, for exercise because that really helps me. Who is your biggest inspiration? Um, gosh, where do I start? I, you know, ironically, I'm going to say Freddie Mercury. I am a huge, huge fan of Queen, and I've always loved um, you know, Freddie and his stage persona and, and so on. And actually, when I saw the film Bohemian Rhapsody last year for the first time and heard the phrase, fortune favours the bold in it, 
that just really clicked with me. And I thought, do you know what? I am going for it. I'm going to go for you know, writing all the stuff I want to do. I'm going to get the association off the ground. I'm going to um, you know, just get all this stuff done that I want to do in cybersecurity. And, 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 and I did. And I, and I think with, with Freddie, I mean, gosh, he was only 45 when, um, when, when he died. But gosh, he lived, to me, he lived far more in those 45 years than most of us will ever do you know, in, in a lifetime. And, you know, he had a lot of the, the, the haters and so on because you know, of his, his sexuality and so on. I just think, no, he was just the most amazing guy and I, I wish I could have met him. If you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be a subject? Uh, <laughs> gosh. Oh, that's a tough one. I'd say probably relating back to what I've just said about you know being bold and and going for things that you want to do and whatever those those things may be, something like that. You're at your best when you are doing what? Um, I'm at my best when I'm when I'm writing um, and creating things and um you know, really sort of you know, in, in the zone when i'm doing you know, blogs and you know articles and reports and and so on um and that goes back to the the, the days of my childhood when i thought i wanted to be a journalist <laughs> <laughs> if today was the last day of your life what one mm. lesson would you impart family is everything i can't tell you how much i love my parents and how my my family's thing to me um and I've created the life to be able to spend that time with them now because they won't be around forever. Um, I've seen that firsthand. And, you know, whenever I see such a people putting everything, everything into their careers, but ignoring their family or not seeing their family enough or getting in touch with their family, I just think, no, you know, if you've got a good, I understand some people don't have good families and I get that. I understand that. But if you do have a good family, treasure them and, and, don't take them for granted and spend as much time with them as you can while they're here because I know from bitter experience that can change in the blink of an eye. And the last one, if heaven exists, mm-hmm. what would you like mm-hmm. to hear God say as the reason he is letting you through the gates? Um, gosh. I'd say probably something along the lines of because of all the help I've given to, to, to people and all the, the achievements I have, but actually um, because of everything that I've done for my, my family and putting them first as well, which is absolutely unconditional for me. They are everything you know, to, to, to me. So I just want to do as best a job as I can for them while I'm here. Excellent. Well, thank you. That concludes the questions. Now, how can people find what you're doing? How can people find the association and how can people find your blogs? Of course. So um, the UK Cyber, UK Cyber Security Association website is www.cybersecurityassociation.co.uk. And we're also on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, my website is lisaventura.co.uk. I also have a blog, cybergeekgirl.co.uk. And I'm on um, Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook as well. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For the latest episodes, please subscribe and for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn.